From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Dr. Harrison Goodall has over 48 years of experience with historic structures and facilities management and nearly 60 years of experience in training and education throughout the country. As a contractor, volunteer, and purveyor of preservation materials, Harrison has been involved in preserving hundreds, if not thousands, of historic structures around the nation. A 2016 award from the National Park Service documented that Goodall completed over 135 volunteer historic preservation projects in 55 national parks, and over 40 of those projects took place in Grand Teton, where he has volunteered consistently since 1976. On this week's PreserveCast, we're sitting down to talk with a preservation trades legend about the future of craft and the lessons learned restoring America's most iconic places. This is PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to preservecast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now... Let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Dr. Harrison Goodall. We're going to be talking about all things trades, the national parks, historic preservation, and looking forward to hearing all about Harrison's career and, and how you got into this. So, um, Harrison, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't we start by telling us a little bit about yourself? So, where did you grow up, and, and where did this passion for history and historic places come from? Oh boy. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Hello. And uh, I am just a, a guy that grew up in South Jersey. Now, that's not New Jersey. It's called South Jersey and a little town called Berlin that was somewhere between the Atlantic City and Philadelphia area. Quiet little place, small little town, went to a high school and got interested in shop. I like to make things and um, and had lots of opportunities there in the shop. And so um, because I like to make things, my, my head went around and said, I just want to be a shop teacher. And uh, I had all the encouragements there could be, went to college and got, um, got to be a shop teacher. And um, um, from there, it just uh, went on that I was going to go do that. And, it, and so I became a shop teacher and said, no, there's more than this. Uh, I got I to do more. And then the next thing you know, um, um, going on, continuing with college and uh, getting employed by a teacher's college, the Montclair State Teacher's College at that particular time, and uh, ended up being a professor teaching teachers to be shop teachers. 
it, it, it's it sort of got carried away there and, and and sort of a passion that I had for for doing something. That's sort of the beginning of how some of this began. So as a as a young person, I mean, given your long history and working in historic places and all those sorts of things, were you always enamored by it, always going to them, or really sort of a it follows this this shop trajectory, not so much the history trajectory? Yes. Yes, uh, you're right, because um, I, I guess for some reason, you might even consider I didn't even know how to spell history. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I was not, uh, it, it, history was not on my mind uh, whatsoever at that period of time. It was just that I was continuing on with this business of, well, the shop is something, as many people can relate that went into some technology kind of areas. And so eventually what I was doing was teaching building technology. Uh, that sort of led itself into a point where uh, a request came in while I was doing this teaching um, to um, move a, a carriage house that was somewhere around 1820 carriage house because it was going to be demolished. And of course, since I had no background at all in this, I said, well, I don't know how to do this. And so it was all new to me. But on the other hand, it was enticing. So that led itself to creating a course in order to get this accomplished, creating a course in historic preservation of students at the college level that uh, would go out and do preservation work. And, um, uh, and, and to preserve this carriage house. Well, long story short, it worked. It was in a magnificent project that was exciting and successful. And about 25 students were so excited that it led to another course and another course and another course. And soon I had 300 applicants for this summer course of historic preservation and I was on my way to learning what is preservation, and and they were too, and we were doing it hands on, and it, it, like a lot of things in my life, it got carried away, or I got carried away, and the next thing you know, there are projects in Ontario uh, that led to well, who is the who is the leader in historic preservation, the National Park Service. So, and next came a whole series of courses, a whole series of opportunities with the National Park Service in Yellowstone, in Grand Teton, in Glacier, in Devil's Tower, in places that I had never even seen or heard of before. Now, had you transitioned at that point from teaching the course to running your own business? Or what was the first project that you did where it was... This is me running this as a project versus this is me teaching a course. The, the, the transition there came when um, uh, an administrative decision was made that I had to have 30 students in order to make up an academic class. Well, trying to work with 30 students 2,000 miles away from home, being their parent, if you will, for that period of time, for 30 days and involved in transportation just didn't, it, it, it 
it was not a workable thing. So that transition occurred where then I stopped at some at one point of holding classes and actually acquired the jobs, if you will, acquired the opportunities and then hired the students, hired selected students to work with me. And, um, and so I would go off with six or eight students rather than with 30 students. And what these first projects were they? I mean, you, you've you've done a lot of log work. I mean, that has been yes. a, a huge yes. part of your career. Were the were the early projects a lot of log projects as well? Yeah, pretty much. Really? Yeah, and that and that's what really. And I, I, I there were no log buildings around where I lived, um, and and it was just an interesting architecture for me, and one that I became excited about, but one that. By repetition, like a lot of things, is just that I, I learned how to deal with them. And I'd like to say that everything in the beginning was appropriate and was done well. But uh, like a lot of other things, we learn and we learn and we do it again and we learn off of that. Yeah. So in addition to this accomplished career and experience in, in the trades, you also had a hand in inventing some pretty cool products um, that have impacted rehab work. Do you want to talk about those at all? What would people be surprised to, to learn about Harrison when it comes to the Harrison the inventor? Well, um, well, a good example of that is um, on one of the projects in Glacier. Our our, our task was to our task with students, as a matter of fact, our task was to move a barn. 40 miles, let me go back, to uh, disassemble the barn, move the pieces of the barn 40 miles, put them all back, to, uh, put it back together uh, at St. Mary's uh, in Glacier National Park. Uh, as we're putting it together, uh, I'm, f I'm finding that we're replacing, we're replacing materials and replacing materials and, and new, new elements are going into the building. And it and it, it it just niggled on me that what is this? What kind of preservation is this when we're taking the historic fabric and replacing it with new? And um, so that led itself into looking at ways to be able to stabilize wood, and uh, that led to epoxies. And at that period of time, this would have been somewhere around 1977 or so. So epoxies were adhesives and not necessarily consolidants or or reinforcements and and it was just a whole new field of being able to use epoxies with with fiberglass rebar and attachments and and uh, and casting of epoxies so that's what got me started on that and then in order to be able to make that work i had to buy epoxies by 55 gallon drums well, um, you don't use all that much epoxy right. <laughs> doing the work that I was doing. So then I had to get, because I had a shelf life, but then I had to do something with it. Well, I'll start selling it. And so that led to a company that I started called Conserve Epoxies, which is still around, um, but I'm not involved directly with that at all. So and that and that really revolutionized the way people could treat particularly log buildings by consolidating and I mean it 
to this day, it's they're they're still used and deployed all over the world now. I would imagine. Yeah, my um, you can even think about it as being a, a wood dentist. Uh, in in that I was doing fillings, I was doing caps uh, rather than replacements, and um, and and even today. When I go look at some of those buildings that I was involved with back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, they're fine. The wood's not. The connections are, or or the or the or the attachments were where they were cared for. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask if they've if they've held up as a dentist if, when you went back and looked at your work, how the how the fillings look, but the fillings are are still there. Yeah, the, the, many of them are where. Like everything else, well, not everything else, but like a lot of things, if we don't maintain things, then they are going to deteriorate also. Uh, but those that were cared for, it's really in, uh, they're in fine shape. And uh, we'll talk about some of those examples uh, along the way here. Yeah. So why don't we do a little bit of that, um, which is, you know, we, you were talking about going back and seeing these places. So let's maybe take a trip down uh, down this experience of all these great places you've worked, I think people would be interested. We've kind of talked about them generally, and you've mentioned, dropped a few hints about Yellowstone and Glacier and, and these incredible and iconic places. Um, but let's talk about in specific some of these projects you worked on it. And I, I thought maybe we would ask about it in terms of different types of projects. So um, rather than just kind of opening it, because there's been so many, um, but like, a, a good example or an interesting maybe way to kick this off would be what was one of the most difficult to access or most remote projects you've ever worked on? I've had the great opportunity to, uh, to be involved in a lot of remote projects in wilderness areas that you could only get there by raft or by helicopter or by horse or mule or walking, um, one of the most interesting ones is, uh, I guess, is thinking about it would be Kenai Fjords in uh, in Alaska, um, and and it wasn't really difficult getting to it because we had helicopters that take us and take, uh, of all things, take logs into Kenai Fjords at the base of the confluence of five glaciers where we were working on a homestead. And of course, we had to bring logs in with huge helicopters because you couldn't cut down a tree uh, in a national park. So the project was simple, That it was exciting, it was interesting. Um, the only thing we didn't realize is that it got warm and we're at the confluence of five glaciers that were melting and the riverbed where the helicopter set down was now over uh, 10 feet of water. And so the helicopters would not be able to come get us. So it meant we had to do a clear cut big enough for a helicopter to be able to land to get us and our equipment back out again. So, um, I, I didn't plan on that part, and neither did anyone else. And it was really an interesting and exciting thing. So it was difficult, to, just trying to get out rather than trying to get to it. Yeah, I mean that's I guess so much for not cutting down a tree. Um, and yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. and then yeah. I mean, were you were you camping on site? Is that you were sort of you must have been living out there? Oh well, yes, yes, of course. 
Yes, and and that was um, and because of that melting, uh, then that stirred up the the bears out of their hibernation, and we were constantly visited by grizzly all the time yeah i mean this isn't like preservation as a job this is like preservation as a way of life i mean like this is this is a different <laughs> level that some of us haven't yeah. either haven't yeah. experienced or haven't enjoyed i mean people listening you can't see this but harrison is smiling through this conversation so he he <laughs> he apparently enjoyed this and and didn't suffer anything from the grizzlies but Ooh. Well, yeah, and many of I have I've had the great fortune of doing a lot of remote wilderness type preservation, and uh, and they have been the most challenging and the most exciting ones, and uh, it's it's really a whole different way of thinking, and and for much of it because they're in wilderness areas, then requires hand tools because uh, power equipment would not be allowed, and so and yet. There we were using hand tools required to use hand tools when we had giant helicopters coming to deliver us to the spot. Right. So, yeah. So it's, uh, it's interesting. So how about highest profile? That might be hard to choose. You've you've worked on some pretty great places, but what would you oh, say? No. Yeah. Oh, how can you beat the Lincoln Memorial? Uh, I mean, I can't think of a higher uh, a profile than than the Lincoln Memorial, and it wasn't that I was working on it. It was at a phase when um, my interest, my interest actually from the very beginning was more on how to maintain, how to pres preserve in its richest sense. How do we continuously try to keep that building in good repair or in good condition or the fabric in good condition. And so I got involved with maintenance and maintenance programs and, um, and then became involved with the National Park Service in developing a, a database for historic structures in the Park Service um, by a, a, a maintenance program that was a database kind of thing. And so, uh, because I got, uh, because I was doing that for the Park Service, then I became involved. Then with uh, was requested to, to to go to the Lincoln Memorial and help them think out <clears throat> how to identify how to identify the various components of the building down to every stone that is in the building and be able to identify that in a methodical way that could go into a database and each element within the building be able to be tracked, inspected, preventive maintenance if necessary, and, and identified. So um, I ended up doing that all across the country with a lot of buildings, but certainly the challenge was here is a monstrous building that that is uh, has thousands of elements and how to be able to get this into a database. So you, and so that was, I was going to say, and you know, every last square inch now of the Lincoln Memorial, I take it. I, it yeah. And I'd never been in it before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it really was. Yeah. Every square inch was uh, everywhere. And, um, and, and it was really interesting and sad at the same time by going through and looking at the spaces that are underneath of where Lincoln, the, the statue of Lincoln is setting, 
it was a swamp, if you will. It was just, it was ne- totally neglected. Yeah. But that, that's another story. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, um, this might also be a, a difficult one, but maybe not. Um, what would be the most challenging? And you could define that in a lot of different ways. You know, maybe the skill involved, unique features, odd assembly. But what was one that really just was hard to work on? There are so many that uh, became challenges, and um, and and so many new elements uh, to deal with that I had never really encountered before. But the the one that I think stands out for me is Norris Museum in Yellowstone. Actually, a lot of the buildings in Yellowstone were so extra special that the the rustic buildings that were built. Uh, pre CCC period, actually, they became the they became the models for uh, the rustic architecture that we all see uh, uh, around the country now, um, dating really from the nineteen teens, nineteen uh, twenties, and uh, the Norris Museum was made up of logs that were um, the, the purlins and the beams were 36 to 42 inches in diameter that made up the central core of the building. And the rafters were ranging from 12 inches to 14 inches in diameter. Uh, and they were all rotted because they were all sitting out into the weather and to the steam from the geyser basin that was right next to it. I even have a photograph of of one of the beams uh, that had an icicle that was almost horizontal, uh, sticking out about two feet from the end of a purlin. And um, and it eventually, uh, it was that purlin that I had because of the moisture on it constantly, because of the ice and the rain and the likes, uh, had rotted the center of that log down in um three feet down inside of the end of that purlin so it meant that i needed to play dentist again and do a cavity right uh and take the decay out of that cavity well to do so it meant that uh, and a 36 inch diameter log i had a chainsaw fully extended at the end of my arms and i am up to my shoulders and almost to my waist inside of the log just preparing it for stabilizing the decay um and then getting ready to build uh, a cavity for that so um that the the rustic architecture were the the real exciting ones because of uh it was a period in which Uh, The architectural style was to extend the elements of the building out into outside and make it look rustic and make it look like it blended in with nature. Well, um, nature often takes things away also. And and so that presents a, a, a preservation challenge. And one that I really kind of specialized with and, and, and absolutely love. I guess the most the, the most important question, um, and I guess this will be verification of your skills, is, is the building still standing? Oh, boy. Is it ever. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, it, and it's something that I, I, I do almost on an annual basis to go through Yellowstone and then check up on all of my patients, if you will. Yeah. Uh, 
and see how their teeth are coming. And, um, and and what I'm finding is very much like what happens in human life is that we don't care for things like we should, and therefore more deterioration is occurring. And um, yeah. So um, oldest structure you've ever worked on? Pretty hard to figure that out. Um, one of the earlier ones was Trinity Church in New York City, right at the end of Wall Street. Right. Sits this magnificent church that was built, I don't know, like 1840 or somewhere around there. Now, I can't say that I really worked on the structure itself, but um, my specialty is really dealing with wood and wood preservation. And so the, the, the reason I was called in there were that the louvers all the way up in the bell tower, up at the top of the spire, were deteriorated. And so um, that was one of my interesting and challenging jobs. It, it, it almost scared the hell of me out of me because that there I am all the way up at the top of this bell tower and the bells start ringing. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I was going to lose it right there. Uh, yeah. But, um, but, but that and some of the wood elements on, on that building, but realistically, most of uh, the earlier buildings that I, the, the earliest of buildings were, uh, uh, barns and farm type buildings, early homesteads that were from the early 80s or the 80s, and most of them were of log construction. Are there any structures out there that you'd love to work on that you haven't had the chance? And and I wonder maybe if that would be internationally because you've done you've touched so much here in the United States. But are there any out there that you would say, well, boy, that would be fun to get my hands on and really get into? Oh, that boggles the mind. Um, uh, it really does boggle the mind of, the, of so many. And so many that out of desperation, I feel like that urge, like I have to do something because I, 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 I have some of these skills and therefore who else is going to do it. But um, I, I will admit that my love is really with rustic architecture, mm -hmm. with, with the big heavy beams, heavy logs, um, um, the the CCC period of that the national parks that then lend itself to most of the national forest buildings really had a rustic uh, influence to them. Um, I, I, I really enjoy those because not only because of what they look like, but how they were constructed and that uh, there were uh, craftsmen uh, I, I enjoyed the craftsmanship of of how they were assembled and how they were built. So that I mean that the two comments you just made sort of transition us nicely to this next topic we want to chat about, um, which is you know you said well sometimes I feel like I have to do it because who else would have the skill set or who else could and then you also said you just mentioned you know there's this this level of craftsmanship that how can you not look at some of these structures and not be in awe or not be impressed by what was done? And so, I mean, you, you care deeply about the future of trades and preservation. You and I have talked about that. And um, we're going to be talking about a, a fellowship um, that you're supporting that really gets at that. But when we talk about trades and preservation in the future, 
what maybe let's start on the on the negative side and then we'll transition to positive but but what's your worry i mean what what does it boil down to that that worries you given all that you've seen where something that that has always concerned me is um first off is the spirit for preserving and i think we're losing that spirit uh, due to a lot of reasons, uh, and, and mainly the one main thing is is the economic aspect of it, but also because people are, um, I, I I don't see I don't think that they often see the value of of, of historic buildings is is that when it gets old, then we tear it down and and clear it out and and, and do another one. Uh, this is particularly true and, uh, of driving across the country or being almost anywhere in the country of seeing some of the early settlement of barns and homesteads that are no longer around. I think all of us can really see how, how, how they're going away so rapidly. But it's also a level of in national parks and forests and other county parks and the likes is that there's always justification that we don't have money, we don't have people to be able to maintain these buildings. And, and that's of a, a, a primary concern for me all the way throughout and even to today of how are we going to care for these buildings and, 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 and do it with um, people that have the skills and the know-how to, to, to make that happen. And I and I would say, I mean, I, I totally agree with all of that, and it's all concerning. But I would also say, and I think people should know that you've been really heavily involved in a variety of different ways, from volunteerism to helping establish core, um, to kind of pushing back on that. So you're not one of those folks who sits on the sidelines and wrings their hands and says, "Oh, woe is me!" and "What a terrible situation this is." And do you think there's any? Do you, are there things that give you hope? Um, are there things that you have seen recently that that fill you with optimism about? maybe what's happening out there i'd like to be optimistic but especially with a being sitting in a pandemic then <laughs> this further beats uh, beats down some of that optimism we need to think that uh, preservation is not just something of the past that's that old stuff uh, that we need to think about what it is that we're preserving for the future for what what are we what are we leaving for those that are going to be around a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, to to have some idea of how we lived, and uh, and, and we've done this in some areas, particularly in the east. We've done this hit or miss by saving some buildings and we make them sort of into little monuments or little historic sites. But what I'm thinking about is the, the vernacular architecture is the thing that excites me of, of uh, the, the way farmers and pioneers and early people, when they settled, uh, how were they living in the kind of structures that they were living in? And it's the kind of thing with, with historic buildings that when I think when people look at historic buildings, it brings back stories of, well, how did they live? And how could they have lived without this or lived in that old building when the snow was going to be uh, over the roof? Um, I, I don't see a lot of optimism here other than 
We need leaders. We need people that understand preservation from uh, a, a management standpoint who are, are going to take the reins and, um, and, and try to deal with budgets and understanding of why it's important to preserve. So to to kind of help guide that future, you have supported uh, a new fellowship. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what this partnership is? And I, I suppose I should say in the interest of full disclosure, I know some of these answers here because Harrison and I have worked a little bit on this with our partners at the National Park Service. But But what is this new fellowship and what do you hope to support with it? I'm looking to excite people into preservation. Uh, and, and in particular, um, those that are either in like a graduate school program in preservation, um, I'm, I'm really looking to, 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 to go beyond where either their studies are in a graduate level or even in their professional level as, as preservationist or as architect preservation or even in structural engineers and those kind of uh, people that are involved in, in that sense is to go beyond where, what they learn and do something special and something special that really makes a, some meaningf meaningful contribution to the field of historic preservation. Now, that could happen in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, some ways uh, uh, could be through research or through leadership kind of things of establishing uh, of uh, the training sessions uh, on a local level for local uh, or regional areas, or it could be bringing in educational programs for in classrooms and involving young people into a program. There's a whole bunch of new technology that's going around these days that I find exciting of of the use of uh, iTablets or, or iPads and iPhones and video and and laser scanners and uh, something that I got excited about some years ago were databases until databases overwhelmed me with <laughs> more technology than I could handle. Uh, and, 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 and in micro learning. So the, so uh, my interests are not necessarily anymore with broad axes and slicks um, and axes but are into YouTube and micro learning uh, and video as a way of educating people and training people uh, to get their skills that way. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and to, because we have those tools now and we're still in a stage where we're learning how to use them. And quite honestly, there are many that I don't know how to use yet. But um, just just thinking about a laser scanner that that can document and create a three dimensional model of a building with uh, uh, with with just scanners to be able to do this, where uh, it would take years of documentation of drawings and measuring uh, of, of of being able to do that another way. Yeah, it's an it's an exciting opportunity, and I think. Um 
it's a great way to use the work that you've done and your legacy to kind of um, move this forward and encourage others to get engaged and to think anew about these opportunities. And so if people want to learn more about the fellowship, they can go to preservationmaryland.org. And as a partner of the National Park Service there through our campaign for historic trades, we're um, partnering up with the National Park Service and the Western Center for Historic Preservation to manage the application process so people can get on the website there and learn more about it. Um, But this is an exciting new opportunity that does not really exist out there as a fellowship um, in, in historic preservation. So this is pretty exciting. Yeah. The the intent is to, is to, is, is, is to do something special. Uh, We all like to, uh, we, and we all love attaboys. Right. Attaboys, attaboys are just wonderful. And and in fact, it's it's what inspired me to do this is because I'm I'm a fortunate person in that I've had a lot of attaboys given to me. I've had opportunities. Now, sometimes uh, you have if you want to get hit by a truck, you have to stand in the street. <laughs> Uh, you, you, have right. to, you have to be there uh, in order to make it happen. But uh, one of the things that I think is important in preservation that I haven't seen much of is opportunities for people to excel, to, to, to do something creative, to do something special. And this includes people who are already in the preservation field, already have a job they're doing the preservation, like cultural resource managers or or preservation specialists or architects. Uh, uh, I can even, even people in the trades area, to, to be able to do that extra step that moves them to a different level in their profession um, and, and, and lets them step upward into their career of what it is they're doing and provides those opportunities to do that. And by doing it, then are labeled as being a preservation fellow. Yeah. And, and, and it increases their, uh, their opportunities into the future. We need, we need more exciting people into the field of preservation uh, in many different directions, and those that have the tools behind them and the experience, but also that have that excitement. Um, and and uh, the, if if there's one thing that uh, of the skill that I have been working on forever is passion, and passion can do anything. When you feel good about something, when you feel that you need to do more, you will. Well, the, the passion certainly comes through in this interview, and it's exciting to see where this heads. And, and I should say, we intend on interviewing um, those who end up receiving um, this these first rounds of, of, or these first fellows, I should say. Um, we'll get a chance to be on PreserveCast to talk about their project. So there's a, a full circle here, and maybe we can have Harrison back uh, in the future to talk about where this where this fellowship program has gone and the success of it and and... Um, perhaps this can add to a little bit of that optimism for the future. And we'll, maybe we'll interview you outside of the pandemic as well. And maybe I will be more optimistic then. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and, and actually, I'm excited about this, of uh, being able to have that opportunity to see more people get excited about preservation. So before we go, the most difficult question we, we ask, which is, 
what's your favorite historic site or place? Oh, as as you probably know, I have been to so many, and that's been so wonderful. Um, but what comes to the top of the pile? Grand Teton National Park. Okay. Uh, I uh, and, and maybe it's because I've worked there forty six times, and I know almost every tree. <laughs> <laughs> or every nook and cranny in the place. No, I know all the historic buildings. I don't know the natural sites at all. Um, there, yeah, there I am rummaging around a national park with a, with, with magnificent uh, mountains and snow-capped mountains and uh, rivers, and I'm out there looking at rotten old buildings. And I say rotten meaning that it deteriorated, not, not in a social sense. Um, I'm, I'm looking at buildings and looking at how special that early settlement of uh, um, really is and how we're preserving it or not preserving it. So Grand Teton National Park is a very special place in my heart. Um, but we are so fortunate to have a National Park Service, a National Forest Service that is protecting and preserving so many of our historic buildings and our heritage. Absolutely. Well, uh, a good answer, um, a fantastic place and a place that we're working with closely now through the Western Center um, to try and uh, figure out how we can make this fellowship really sing. And so again, if people are interested in the fellowship, you can go to preservationmaryland.org and uh, you can just look up Harrison Goodall and find out more about this fellowship. Um, Harrison, it's been a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Always fun to talk with you about the fantastic places that you've impacted and the great work that you've done, um, not only for your career, but really on behalf of the American people and protecting places that matter to all of us. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for the opportunity. And I look forward to the next one. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.